Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. We're going to read all the way through verse 9. But to get started this morning, we're going to, we're going to study verses 1 through 3. But we're going to read all the way through verse 9. This is one big uh, kind of section here. And so we want to read uh, all the way through, but we're just going to look at verses 1 through 3 this morning. Focus in on 1 through 3. Let's go. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia. And I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, as we approach this passage, we need to remember kind of where we've been the last several weeks. Paul has called us to find godly examples that we could follow. He says, imitate me, a a theme in most of the scripture, Paul telling you, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And he says, look for godly examples. And and he says that at the beginning here in in chapter 3, verse 12 calls them to obtain, to, uh, to seek godly examples like him. So he tells you who, what he's like. And then in verse 17 he says, imitate me or imitate people who act and walk the way I do. And then he explains to you what that doesn't look like. And then he tells you what it does look like. And so there in verses last week when we talked about it, we talked about verses 20 through 21, kind of what it does look like. And now we're going we're gonna to see what it means to stand firm in the faith, to stand firm amidst a culture that is difficult to do it in, amidst a surrounding that is difficult, and amidst a community that is sometimes difficult. So we're going to see that, and it's very much this last passage here, this, this last passage before he gets to his final statements, this passage is where kind of the, the rubber meets the road. He starts to name names. I just want to set the stage for you. If you were in the audience and your name was Yodia or Syntyche, 
And the elder of the church is standing up front reading Paul's letter out loud, and they have not told you that you're going to be in the letter, or maybe they have. And he comes to this passage and he reads that phrase. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. These two women who are clearly having a disagreement, and Paul calls them out by name. Agree in the Lord. So, there's a, there's a rubber meeting the road here. There's a, this is a ground-level reality. We've been talking about ethereal matters, what it means to be holy, what it means to be righteous, what it means to be, have an eternal mindset, and we use these general, large-scope theological terms to talk about how we are to relate, and then Paul comes to this chapter, and he goes, this matters. It matters what you think about eternity. It matters what you think about love. It matters what you think about righteousness and holiness and goodness. These things matter. So we want to strive to make it matter for us. To make this matter. Our goal, be reminded, our goal is to be Christ-like. Our goal is to be like Jesus. Not merely a good person. Good people go to hell. I want to be a good person. I want to be Christ-like. I want to be so saturated with Jesus that people see Him in me. We want to be Christ-like. Individually, we do what Paul says. We throw off what we once valued as, as great gain. We throw off the things we valued as great gain and tremendous victory and benefit. We throw off what the world calls prestige, what the world calls honor, what the world calls joy. We throw those things off for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus. We strive towards eternity, having an eternal mindset, realizing that the troubles of this world will pass. The victories of this world will pass. But one thing will remain. The heavenly kingdom which we pursue Granted by Jesus and his blood shed for us and his life given and then resurrected from the dead that we would have life. We only trust in his righteousness. So we strive to throw off what was once valued. We strive towards eternity and we strive to be more Christ-like. And note, we strive. Christianity is not done in a vacuum. You don't do Christianity by yourself. That's not how you were made. You were made to do Christianity with other people. You were made to be in community. To echo the Trinity. The church is supposed to look and echo that communal relationship that the Trinity has in and of itself. We are supposed to be God's image and glory poured out on this earth. We're supposed to look Like Him, which means the Father loved the Son, the Son loved the Spirit, the Spirit loved the Father. They were in perfect communion together, and out of that perfect communion overflows creation and beauty and wonder and life. And the church is supposed to echo that. We're supposed to look like it. Perfect community held together by the Lord God Himself, intertwined with each other, made to be one family. It's great that God uses the term family. 
by the way, because you don't pick that. Right? You don't get to vote. You can't vote somebody out of your family. That doesn't, it's not how it works. I mean, I know in the United States there's some weird, like, emancipation nonsense. It's not how it works. If, if you're watching this and you're a kid that's like, I'm going to be emancipated from my parents. No, you're not. You can't. It's not allowed. It's not. I mean, you legally, maybe in the United States, but that's perverse. And you can't do it because God said no. You're that. You're his kid. So you can't. We have family that you don't choose. I love the fact that God uses that example for us. You see, our growth in Christ and our growth becoming Christ-like is best accomplished in community. And so Paul is going to call us to stand firm, but not to stand firm by ourselves. You know he's not talking about standing firm by ourselves because he immediately launches into, these two women need to agree. These two women need to put the hatchet down and agree. That's immediately what he launches into. You don't stand firm by yourself. You stand firm with the body. We are part of a building whose cornerstone is Jesus Christ. So we stand firm together. So how does this work in community? First, I think we must have the right perspective here in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers whom I love... And I long for my joy and my crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So there's several things that show us the perspective we should have towards each other. This is the perspective we ought to have towards each other. It's the perspective Paul had towards the Philippians indeed. It's, it's the perspective that shines through in his, uh, in his writings to the churches. So here's his perspective here on you, on me, on what we are to look like together. Therefore, my brothers, first, you are family. You are family. Now, I have uh, two brothers and a sister. Biological. Two, two biological brothers. One, I mean, sorry, a, a biological brother, a biological sister, an adopted brother. They are my family. They are my family. And when I see them, when I, when I see them, I, I recognize family. It doesn't matter what they think. We stand on opposite ends. Sometimes we stand on opposite ends of theology. We stand on opposite ends of political spectrums. We stand on opposite ends of, of social issues. Sometimes we, we are often in conflict in those areas, but one thing remains the same and can never change, and that's that we are family. And if they need something, I will cut off my arm to get it for them. If they are in need, they have it because they're family, and I burden for them, and I, and I weep for them, and I struggle for them, and, and I may have difficulty, but I, I may have difficulty in conversation with them where I have to avoid certain issues, but I... Love them. I love them. You see, there's a recognition that you are part of a family here. I love my brothers. We don't always agree on everything, and I often try to avoid certain conversations with them. If you're watching, I'm sorry. It's true. <laughs> I often will try to avoid conversations 
about politics in particular with them, mostly because I think politics is a wasted conversation a majority of the time, but also because we disagree. But they will never cease to be my brothers. My sister will never cease to be my sister. They are family no matter what they believe, or what they hold to, what they stand with. They are family. Likewise, you have been ushered into the family of God. They are, we are brothers and sisters to each other. Which means no matter how rotten you behave, no matter how much you bother each other, you are family. And that doesn't change. No matter how rotten you are. I mean, I have four children. And this morning, this morning, there has not been a lot of time. And this morning, they've already clashed and fought. It's beautiful. They've clashed and fought, and I've already had multiple gospel conversations with my kids. I call them gospel conversations. You might call them correction. They are gospel conversations. We've already had a lot. They are brothers and sisters. Family connection is not something you can lose. It's also not something you get to choose. I don't get to choose who God brings into the kingdom of God. I don't. I wish I did, but if I did, I probably wouldn't make the list. If I was in charge of who got in. Fortunately, God is gracious and more kind and gracious and benevolent than I am. So I get to go in. But I don't get to choose who else is a believer and who's not a believer. I don't get to choose who comes to church and who doesn't. I don't get to choose who will sit across the table from me and who doesn't sit across the table from me. I don't get to choose who participates and who, who avoids. I don't, I don't get to choose that. Neither do you. But those who trust in Jesus are family. Even if I don't necessarily enjoy them. Even if you don't necessarily enjoy me. They're family. Yeah, there are going to be conversations you have to avoid. Yeah, there are going to be times when you don't want to talk about the thing that they want to talk about. I was recently sitting with a, a dear brother who began talking about sports. He loves sports, and this guy's talking about them. And I, and I can keep up. I'm, you know, I'm, I watched sports when I was young, and I can keep up. So we're talking, and yeah, okay, yeah, and I remember, the, yeah, this is great. Oh, that's cool. Who's your favorite? Oh, that's great. What did he do? And blah, blah, blah. And he's talking, and he's talking, and he goes, so what sports do you like to watch? And I said, oh, I don't watch sports. And it was the weirdest thing, this guy's face just, well, you don't, you've been talking with me for 20 minutes. And I just looked at him and I was like, I mean, I can talk about it. I can talk about what you like to do. I can talk about the things you like. I was like, but I, I don't really watch sports. I mean, they're fun. I don't, I don't have a great deal of desire for them. Sometimes you have to have those conversations. And sometimes you have to sit across from me and listen to me talk about the latest theologian I've been reading that just bores you to tears. And I'll talk for hours about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Martin Niemöller. The person across the table will go, yeah, oh, that's really exciting. I'll be so passionate. And then I'll realize they don't, they don't know who those people are and they don't, they don't care about the book that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in the 1930s. They don't. It's not a big deal. 
Likewise, they are family, and we sit across the table from them. Look at the next phrase. Whom I love and long for. Whom I love and long for. This is agape love, of course, that he'd be using here. It makes sense that he'd be using the word agape. Whom I agape, whom I lay down my life for, who I uh, self-sacrificially love, and I long for, I yearn for. Now, I... Several years ago, I took a mission group up to my hometown, Baltimore, um, and we rode a 27-hour bus ride. It was miserable. It broke down halfway through. Um, it ended up being a 36-hour bus ride. And we drove all the way there to go to my hometown and, and my home church. And you need to understand that the culture in Maryland is very different than the culture here. In Maryland, where I went to high school, if you didn't believe in Jesus, that wasn't a big deal. If you didn't go to church, that didn't really matter. Um, it wasn't a thing like it is here. Here, everybody has gone to church at some point. Pretty much the majority of people have been baptized at some point, a lot of them at youth camp. Now, they don't know Jesus. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying they're saved. <laughs> a lot of people who think they're believers down here because they got dunked in some water at some point in their history, they, uh, they don't know the Lord. Um, and that's we strive to share the gospel here. That's why we're here. But up there, most of my friends, if you went to church, you were weird. You were strange. If you called yourself a Christian, you were looked at funny. <laughs> You're a Christian? Okay, that means you don't get to have any fun. It was, it, was, it was very strange, very different than it is here. And so uh, we were I was bringing a mission crew up to do mission work in Baltimore, and my heart was heavy because my entire family lived there. My whole family lived there, and they were Christians who were living in a place where Christianity is not always easy. And we pulled into the parking lot of the church after a 36-hour drive, and I got off the bus, and I just began to weep. Because it was my family, whom I love and long for, whom I long to serve alongside and be with, who I care so immensely for, and who my heart is constantly heavy for. It's the same way I feel when I've been on vacation and come back to Sovereign Grace Fellowship. On the plane ride coming home, there's this joy in me knowing that I'm going to be back with my people whom I love and long for. And that's what Paul's writing. He's, he's writing about this love and long for. This is how we ought to be. So first, we recognize in the right perspective that we have a family. Second, we exercise that recognition by loving one another and yearning to be with each other. Then we see here, my joy and crown. My joy and crown. You see, true community... True community is joy. True community is joy. When you, when you really have Christian community, it's a joy to be around each other. 
again, even if you don't agree, even if there's difficulties, it's still a joy to be around each other. It's still a joy to be around family. Indeed, who you love and long for. We find our joy when community is abundant. We find our joy when community is abundant. And like we said a couple weeks ago, it's not hard to find this kind of community. But it does take a little bit of work. It's not hard to find this kind of community. It's out there. But it does take a little bit of work. You have to go do it. You have to leave your home. You have to go to somebody else's. You have to stay late at things. You have to engage with people when you don't want to and you're tired. You have to actually put in some work to have this kind of community. You have to stay for things. You have to do things together. You have to exhaust yourself sometimes. This is, this is true community. But we find our greatest joy where Christian community is abundant. Where it's abundant. Now, just a side note, at Sovereign Grace, we offer several opportunities for you to have community. One is Sunday morning. One is small group. One is lunch after Sunday morning. In addition to that, we urge you, we urge you to communicate and contact each other and spend time together. I will give you anybody's phone number in the church you want. I will violate their privacy. I will give you their phone number and you can call them. If they come to this church, then you have the joy and privilege of contacting them and calling them and bothering them and praying for them and loving them and driving them nuts. You have the privilege to do that here because that's what Christian community is. That's what Christian community is. How we treat each other in this community, has eternal repercussions. I want you to understand that, that you're relating to each other in love is not just for you. It's not just for the church. It's not just for me. But you're relating to each other in love is how the world will see Jesus. What does Jesus say? They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. And they see the way you love each other. That's when they will see Jesus. No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. But when we love each other, His name and His power is made manifest among us. Indeed, people will see the kingdom of God in the way that we love each other. Your love for the rest of the church and for the saints has eternal repercussions. People will be brought to the kingdom of God because you have loved others. Because you have loved others. Last, he, last perspective here. So there's four things we've got. Family, we see each other as family. We love and long for each other. We see each other as joy and crown, the victor crown, the laurel wreath that's given. We, we see each other as the victor, as, as crowns here, having eternal repercussions. And then finally, that last phrase he uses to describe them, my beloved, 
fun Greek word, agape toy. Agape toy. That's the word. I'm sure I'm butchering the pronunciation of it, and somebody online is going, that's not how you say that word. Agape toy. It's fun to say that way. So, we love each other, beloved, but not only do we love each other, but we find something inherently lovely about each other. We find something inherently worthy about each other. And what's odd about Christianity is that inherent worth that we find in each other is exactly our unworthiness and that Christ has bestowed grace on us anyway. You see, we find in each other, in Christian community, we find in each other beloved, agape love, not because we are that, Not because we are the bastions of it, but because Jesus Christ has loved you and loved me and neither of us was worthy of it. We find worth in each other precisely because we were unworthy and Christ has given us life anyway. Because he is lovely and he is worthy and he is great and we see him in each other. That's Christian community. So this is the right perspective here in verse 1 as we relate to each other. Our uniting bond is this agape love. Then he says, stand firm thus in the Lord. So for the next couple weeks, we're going to see what it means to stand firm in the Lord. This is the chief exhortation in in these nine verses. Stand firm thus in the Lord. Stand firm in this way. That word thus means in this way. Stand firm in this way in the Lord. So we are to stand firm, meaning standing as opposed to falling or failing. Standing as opposed to falling or failing. We are to stand firm in the Lord as one who is standing before a judge, able to stand upright, under the weight of justice. Under the weight of justice, you are able to stand upright. Someone who has stood firm in the Lord. Someone who has run the race and stands before God and is able to stand because of what Christ has done in his heart and because it is evident in his life. We stand firm thus in the Lord, and He gives us uh, three instructions or exhortations that we want to see here. First, stand firm in the Lord. Second, agree in the Lord, and then third, help each other. Those are the three things He admonishes us to do. That we're going to spend our concluding remarks here looking at. So, stand firm in the Lord. We are to stand as those who will stand clean. Before the Lord. So imagine that day when you walk before the Lord and He's on the throne, what some people call the Bema Seat of Judgment. He's sitting up there and and you are standing before Him in the throne room. The same picture that the prophets all get when they walk into the room and there's pillars and the train of His robe fills the temples and there's smoke and angels are flying back and forth screaming, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of His glory and you've got this crystal sea, as he says in the 
in the in the book of Revelation laid out before him, and he's got these these all these colors and things are just blasting you in the face, and then you turn and you see the Lord, the God of the universe, the King of glory, in all his enduring beauty and majesty, and you you're gonna fall down. Evidently, John the Apostle falls down. So, I don't know about you, but, I mean, John the Apostle, John the Elkins, not quite. I imagine John the Apostle, a little more righteous, strong, faithful, a little more further along the road than I am. And he fell down, so I think I'm going to fall down. I doubt anybody's going to be like, no, I'm standing. No, you're all going to drop. And then, Scripture explains that he picks us up and we stand before the Lord. I want you to imagine you are called before the King of Glory and you walk in and you are able to stand in integrity and in in clean conscience. And though you fall at first, you are able to stand before him. You are able to stand before the Lord. Now flip it a little bit. And put us down here on earth. And imagine the whole world is looking at you and examining your life. Every little detail. And Paul says to you, Stand firm in the Lord. A day is coming, brothers and sisters, when we are going to be judged condemned, rejected, and shoved aside. When Christians are going to have to be greater integrity than anyone else in the world. The day is coming, and Paul says, stand firm. This means that you would have integrity. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus warns us that nothing will be hidden that is hidden. Nothing that is done in secret will be hidden, but everything will be exposed. It will be revealed. We need to have integrity before the Lord. Be the same person you are in the dark as you are in the light. Second, we need to stand firm with strength and courage and faithful consistency to Jesus and faithfulness Listen, you've got nothing to fear on this earth. There is nothing here to fear. Yet, this earth is terrifying. And the Philippians knew it. The Philippians were facing legitimate persecution. People being thrown in prison because they talked to their neighbor about Jesus. They're facing legitimate persecution and difficulty. And Paul is telling them, stand firm. Be faithful. Stand firm. A day is coming when that will happen here as well. I would love to tell you that it won't. I would love to tell you that the United States and the world as a whole is going to, is is not going to persecute Christians ever, but we see it in other countries constantly. It's likely that it's going to happen here too. Stand firm in the Lord. Remain faithful. 
Paul also urges the Corinthians with the same word to stay faithful. He urges the Thessalonians with the same word to stay steadfast and faithful. Remain faithful to the gospel. When you are told to abandon the scripture, to deny the gospel, or do something that is not in accordance with the gospel, you do what is in accordance with the gospel. You stand firm. Be like the saints of old. Be like Athanasius, who stood contra mundum against the world, the whole world telling him to deny the deity of Christ, and he says no. They exile him for three years. He comes back. They tell him to deny the deity of Christ. He says no. Christ is God. They exile him again. This time they try to kill the people in his church. He comes back. They tell him, deny the deity of Christ, submit to Arianism, give up the theology of Jesus is God, and he says, no, standing against the entire known Christianized world. Remember, it was a Christian Roman ruler who exiled Athanasius, Seven times he's exiled. Stand firm like that. Stand firm like Martin Luther, who said we need the the Bible in common language. And when the popes and everyone else called him a heretic and told him grace alone is not good enough, you are defying the doctrines of the church, Martin Luther said, be gone with the doctrines of the church if it's not in Scripture. Kidnapped and held in a, in a tower for three years to translate the Bible. Praise the Lord for shrewd politician Frederick the Wise who kidnapped Martin Luther simply because he thought, maybe Martin Luther's right, but I don't want you to burn my best professor. Those are his words. Puts him in a tower... He translates the Bible. You remember when you didn't have the Bible in your language? Yeah, me neither. That's why we celebrate men like Martin Luther who stood firm in the Lord. Stand firm like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who went to a concentration camp because he refused to sign the Aryan paragraph. That racist decree that denied the deity and lordship of Jesus Christ and handed it to the Fuhrer the Aryan paragraph, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Martin Niemöller both went to prison for that because they refused to sign it and they stood against the Nazi regime preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in the face of utter evil. Stand firm as these men in history, these women like Lady Jane Grey who stood for the gospel being made available to all people. Stand firm. Next, we have this agree in the Lord, and, and we have a specific story here. I entreat Iodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So the next exhortation for us is to agree in the Lord. This phrase, agree in the Lord, by the way, means have the same mind. Have the same mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You remember this from chapter 2? Which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
who, being in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, indeed taking the form of man, coming down in the form of a man, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Have the same mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he tells these two women, have the same mind. He's Note know what's lacking here. Note what's not in his exhortation to them. He doesn't say, just get over it. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, give her back her towels. I don't know what the specific, we don't know what the specific issue was. But I was in a church at one point where one lady held a 15-year grudge against another lady because of kitchen towels. Yep, one lady had taken kitchen towels home from a potluck that this particular lady had made and sewn herself. But this lady over here thought they were hers. She took them home. For 15 years, this lady stewed on that and through a series of interactions, this lady began to despise this lady, and this lady despised this lady. Come to find out, 15 years prior, so-and-so had taken so-and-so's kitchen towels and had never given them back, and I sewed them myself. That's exactly how she said it to me. Now, what do you do with that? What do you, what do, you do with such petty nonsense? You tell them about the mind of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then you put them in a kitchen together and you make them work for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's hard. Yet I've done it millions of times. Find two people who are in disagreement and get them working for the Lord together. 50-50 chance one of them doesn't die. But, I'm just being honest, but... You also will see the gospel move forward because if they're genuine believers, they are going to forgive and move forward. We're not told about the petty argument. We're not given excuses about their personalities or, or we're so-and-so is just difficult to be around. We're not, we're not told syntyche is just kind of coarse and rude. We're not told those things. No, we're told that they are, they are to agree in the Lord. They are to have the same mind in the Lord. Back to chapter 2. Have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. So what can we see about these things? First off, uh, just by way of application, listen, Christian, you are not allowed to say the phrase, you always do this. You're not allowed to. That's called unforgiveness. And one of the defining marks of Christianity is that we forgive and we move on. You're not allowed to say that. You always do this. No, no. You are allowed to say, hey, how can we do better in this area? How can we move forward from this? You're not allowed to hold grudges. That's not Christian forgiveness. Second, Christians love each other the way Jesus loved, each, loved others. So I want you to think considerately about how Jesus loved Judas. 
Don't pick the easy one. Don't pick John the Apostle who's laying his head on Jesus at every turn. Pick Judas. How did Jesus love Judas? Now you love your brother and sister that way. How did Jesus love Judas? You love your brother and sister that way. I got two things for you right off the bat. Jesus washes Judas' feet in John 13, and then he gives him the honored position at the Passover supper. Two huge gifts. He entrusted him with the finances. Judas carried the money back. How did Jesus love Judas? That's how you should love your brothers and sisters. Finally, Christians are to be Christ-centered. If you've seen nothing else throughout this entire book that we've been studying thus far, you should see that the whole thing is about Christians being like Christ. We are to be like Jesus. To strive to be like Jesus. So he says, I entreat Yodia and Syntyche to have the same mind in the Lord. Brother, sister in Christ, listen. It is your responsibility to have this mind. And sometimes that means going to the person and talking to them. And then sometimes it means letting them have room and letting them know you're there. Letting them have room and letting them know you're there. Sometimes it looks different. Sometimes it means aggressively sticking them both in a kitchen and going, hey, you're going to work together or so help me, you're both out. Sometimes it means giving them space and just saying, hey, it will work itself out eventually. But it is on us to show the world what love looks like. So we do it. And we agree in the Lord together. Then verse 3, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Hold each other together. This word help here, help these women, means to hold together. To hold them together. Indeed, they are sisters in Christ. You are to hold them together that they would see Jesus and delight as they are united in Jesus Christ. So hold them together. Help these women. And then he gives you the reason that you help them. They've labored side by side. So they've shown evidence that they care about the gospel. So if they've shown evidence that they care about the gospel, you need to hold them together so that they would go forth and do gospel ministry. Again, sometimes that looks like we're going to give you space and let you know we're here, and we're ready for you at any turn to return and come back. We're going to give you that space. Sometimes it looks like you're both going to work in the kitchen, peeling potatoes for three hours by yourself, and then I'm going to come in and check on you and make sure neither of you stabbed the other one. That, sometimes it looks like either one of those. But in grace and in mercy, we hold each other together. We help each other. We help one another. We labor side by side in the gospel. This is why. Because we've labored together in the gospel. And then the second reason is their names are in the book of life. They're Christians. Their names are in the book of life. 
You don't abandon your brothers and sisters. They're Christians. One of the most convicting things you can say to one of your kids when they're angry with a sibling is, that's your sibling. That's your family. Man, that'll break right through any wall. They'll suddenly realize that they've just hurt themselves. And it will be a tremendous burden. And they will immediately try to fix it. I tell you, the heart of a child is so beautifully tender as an example for where our own hearts should be. We are to help one another in the Lord. So we stand firm. We agree in the Lord. And we help one another. And why do we do this? Why? Because the love of Jesus Christ transcends our own failures. You see, Jesus Christ came to earth. He became a man. He gave up a position in heaven, surrendered His heavenly kingdom to put on skin and bone and become human. He cried. He was a baby. He couldn't move. He had to be carried. He suffered in the world. He got tired. He got thirsty. He says it multiple times. I'm thirsty. I'm tired. He screamed like a child. He played with other children. And they made too much noise in synagogue. And it was great. Jesus did these things. He grew into a man. He then lives living a perfect life, spends three years walking across the known Israel area, walks across there and preaches the kingdom of heaven, tells people about God, living a perfect life, and he is condemned for it, murdered on your behalf, taking sin of the world upon himself, that all who would look to him would believe and be freed from sin and rescued. And then he doesn't stop there. He raises again to new life. And in new life in Christ, he gives you the opportunity to be resurrected to a new life. This is why we love each other. Because God gave us grace where we were sinners who needed rescuing and God gave us grace where we deserved condemnation. So we give grace and love to one another, constantly overlooking flaws, never holding grudges, asking forgiveness when we must, and asking forgiveness when it may not be necessary. But always be humble as Jesus was, coming down to the earth, and letting people sometimes step on us for the sake of grace and mercy and love. Let's pray. Father, I wish that I had this kind of love in abundance. I know you put it in me, and I know it's there, and I know that you have done the work to rescue me and save me. 
Lord, I wish that I would love the way you loved. That in the thoughts that I have that so often echo the Iodias and Syntyches of the world, that, that you would remind me of the grace you gave me and I would be able to extend that to others. For Lord, you are good. You are merciful. And even in difficulty, in our difficult circumstances where community may fail and where we as people fail each other, Lord, you never fail. And your love always remains. How marvelous you are, Father. How amazing. Be glorified now. We love you.